You're listening to episode 72 of the Room to Grow podcast. I'm Emily Goff, a holistic nutritionist and women's lifestyle coach living in Hamilton, Ontario in Canada. And here on the Room to Grow podcast, I bring you thoughts or guests in areas of nutrition, mindset, lifestyle, and entrepreneurship that will help you gain confidence so you can stress less and elevate yourself to create the life you love. We are not here to do things perfectly, but we are here to learn from each other and to grow with lots of self-love and compassion along the way. Let's get started. Hey there, welcome back to the Room to Grow podcast. And today's guest is so, so special. I came across her by looking specifically for someone who practiced somatic therapy. And I came up with Ailey Jolie, and she was an absolute delight to talk to you on this interview. I am so excited to share this with you because she this interview was even better than I could have hoped for or imagined. And she has such a beautiful way of explaining everything in a, in a really simple, easy to understand manner that is easy then to carry with you into your everyday life as well without necessarily seeing a somatic therapist, although that's still obviously even more beneficial. But Ailey is passionate about embodiment about supporting others living fully and wholly in their body. And all of this is mirrored in her work as a trauma therapist, a yoga teacher, meditation guide, and an internationally published author. In her clinical practice, Ailey works with individuals who have experienced trauma and no longer feel safe in their body. She assists clients in their process of coming home to their body through somatic and mindfulness-based psychotherapies. And the same approaches helped her reconnect with her body after sexual violence and exploitation. So presently, she's actually working towards obtaining a second Master's of Arts degree in depth psychology with an emphasis in somatic studies. So to say that Ailey knows her stuff is putting it mildly. (laughs) So we end up covering quite a lot in this episode, including examining different types of trauma and some really surprising events that can be traumatic emotionally and manifest physically. We discuss some of the ways that we can slow down and tap into the sensory experience of the body some of the ways that our bodies communicate to others as well, and the science behind that and how we often mirror the behavior of others. That that explanation is really, really cool that Ellie gives us. Uh, How somatic therapy is tied to helping to heal eating disorders as well, and why your your sore joints and posture might actually be telling you a little bit more about yourself than just the fact that you work a desk job. <laughs> so Ailey has some really, really cool things to share with us today, and I'm so excited for you to listen. For anything referenced in this episode, make sure to jump over to roomtogrowpodcast.com. Everything will be listed over there. Ailey also gives us some uh, potential reading materials if you're interested in learning more, as well as connecting with her as well. So let's get going. Hey there, welcome back to the Room to Grow podcast, and I am so excited to talk to Ailey Jolie today. Ailey is a somatic therapist, and I'm going to let her introduce herself because I'm, I, I was just telling her that I have been more excited about this interview than, than any other for a while just because of this amazing topic. So please, Ailey, thank you so much for being here today. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for the beautiful introduction. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us a little bit about you. So who, who are you? What do you do? Like a little background about yourself and how you kind of ended up doing what you, what you do now. Yeah, for sure. Um, So presently, I'm in Vancouver, BC, and I work as a trauma therapist and eating disorder specialist. And my modality is all around uh, somatic therapy. And somatic therapy is basically based on um, your body and how your body stores emotions and processes trauma and essentially like how your body is in the world in 
the essence of how it communicates to you and to other people. Um, and I got into this work, specifically the body-based um, aspect of it from my own experience of recovery and spending years in eating disorder treatment centers, doing relatively well with food and having success there, but never truly being able to talk about the things that had created the eating disorder in my life, never having enough safety in my body to talk about the trauma I had experienced. And so I come to this field and those two specialties um, really from my own life experience. And I'm really privileged that I do get to work with people who have trauma and are using the mechanism of an eating disorder to cope with that or manage with that. And I use that language specifically because I really do view um, disordered eating and eating disorders as a coping mechanism and as a tool to be used until there's enough safety in the body to fully be in your body and um, be in alignment with all that that means. That's really fascinating, especially the part about eating disorders being almost a coping mechanism. Can you expand on that a little bit and, and what that means in relation to the trauma that we often experience and how that can end up leading into something like an eating disorder? Yeah, for sure. Um, I always start with my clients in defining trauma and how it's been taught to me. Um, I've taken training in sensory motor psychotherapy and somatic experiencing. And I mentioned those if people are interested in what I'm talking about, this is where it comes from. And so in both of those perspectives or theories of thought, they view trauma as anything, anything, anything that overrides the system, so your central nervous system's ability to cope. So this could be a breakup that you just didn't have support. Maybe you moved to a new country and you didn't have anyone to talk to about it. And that is a trauma. And we wouldn't necessarily think of a breakup as being a trauma. But if we don't have support and an ability to really regulate our body and have people to attune to, to be in relationship with, our body holds all that like icky, anxious feeling inside. In the same way that a trauma can be what we commonly think of in a car accident or a sexual assault or being ill or becoming ill, watching someone pass away. All of those other things are also traumatic or can be, but if you have the support and you have that system to actually be in the capacity of holding all that uncomfortable feeling and have someone to process it and have community, that may not be as traumatic as that breakup. And I always explain it in this way because it relates so much to eating disorders and how we view them and viewing an eating disorder as a coping mechanism, as a tool to try and regulate the body and try and manage some of that uncomfortable feeling that we don't know how to name and we don't have support to process. Mm, that is such a really great way of describing it and relating it back. And I, I feel as though we often underestimate those types of, of traumas, like especially something like, like a breakup, like the example that you used. And I, I, I almost, what was coming up for me when you were talking was that I feel like sometimes we also tend to overuse the word tra like traumatic or traumatized, like, oh, I'm so traumatized by, I don't know, something like, like a <laughs> restaurant serving me a, a plate with uh, a plate of food with hair in it or something, you know, we'll, we'll make jokes about it. <laughs> but we aren't really using that term in the right ways. And then at the, at the other end of the spectrum, we often aren't 
giving a particular situation like a big breakup enough credit in terms of how deep that can affect us on a really significant level. And it, it can kind of swing back and forth between the two. And we aren't looking at things from a more holistic perspective. I don't know. It, it, that, that just kind of struck me as, as you were talking about that. For sure. I completely agree. My Jungian uh, lens, I'm studying at Pacifica right now, and I'm in a joint master's doctorate in Jungian psychology, and we talk a lot about language. And I view this kind of cultural phenomena right now of, of using the word trauma or traumatic or traumatizing as just kind of the, the psyche or collective unconscious, kind of having a moment of honesty and not not naming like, hey, life right now is like challenging, but I'm gonna make light of it in this way. And I, there is like a phenomenon right now where I feel like the words embodied and traumatic are, are just kind of thrown around all of the time without really exploring what that means and really understanding what trauma means. Um, but when we look in our society right now, there's so many things going on that we don't have control about. And it's just kind of like, an uncomfortable time to, to be human in a lot of ways. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Because then there's also situations where um, I, I find that more and more people are becoming more understanding of mm. the entire mental health aspect of, of our health in general. But there are also times where you can go through a really significant life event. And some people might say to you like, oh, you know, just get over it. Like, just yes. move on. Like, it's fine just brush it off, you know, like you're, you're good, you're so strong, like just carry on. And we're not, when we do that, I can appreciate the sentiment, but then that isn't acknowledging everything else that goes with it and that trauma that could be occurring depending on, on the situation. And we're trying to go around it rather than through it. And that's sort of where a lot of this originates and then can turn into things that are then are like coping mechanisms, things like eating disorders potentially for some people, right? For sure. And that seems to be, um, I, yeah, I can agree with you in the sense of it. it seems to be more and more common. And as beautiful as the wellness world is, the, um, the place it often comes from, so the land of like the cognitive or more patriarchal, um, kind of goes in line with that spiritual bypassing. And that spiritual bypassing often includes not tapping into the wisdom of the body. And if you tap into the body, you can really get a clear somatic and felt sense, like a feeling of those things. And therefore, you can kind of find your truth in you. Um, but if you're going from the land of the cognitive, the mind is so beautiful in its ability to shift things around. And yeah, that's, that's why the somatics is so important in my mind. <laughs> Well, and, and it's funny, I was telling you right before we jumped on that I actually found you because I, I literally looked up on Instagram, the hashtag somatic therapist, because I didn't know how else to find one. And I thought, oh, maybe I'll see what pops up here. And I came across your beautiful, beautiful Instagram account. I, I'll link it in the show notes because I want to make sure that everyone uh, goes and accesses that. And what, when I first started getting interested in this this kind of different lens of looking at things was uh, about a year ago, my therapist said to me, where are you feeling anxiety in your body? And she stopped me dead in my tracks because I had never thought of it that way. And as soon as I started thinking about it, there was this long, you know, that awkward pause in therapy. That's not awkward for you therapists. It's just awkward for us on the couch. <laughs> and I had to really think about it. And I'm like, well, it's in, it's in my stomach. And ever since then I had been so hyper aware of it. And when I talk to people about, um, you know, just, just experiencing that myself, you can almost see 
light bulbs going on. And they're like, mm. oh yeah, like it manifests for me here or there, like somewhere else. And it's, it's really interesting to see the connection. So what, what is actually involved in this type of therapy? Because it, it's a more unique, holistic perspective, where do you kind of start with people? Yeah. Um, when I see a new client, I'm always, one of my first questions is just assessing their relationship to mindfulness. Um, I practice from a very mindfulness-based kind of, that would be the foundation, because to tap into the body, you have to slow down, um, especially in our like really high-paced, busy world. It requires that slowing down and that settling. And that's kind of step one for me when I'm working with someone new is assessing their engagement with mindfulness and also holding space that, especially with eating disorders, the idea of sitting down and tuning into the body is a nightmare. That is the last place that often someone with an eating disorder wants to go. So knowing that, it's looking into other mindfulness-based practices. And maybe that can be self-touch. Maybe that can be bringing awareness even to those moments that seem disordered. Can we slow them down? Can we be more present? Maybe it's engaging, um, I call them like smell meditations of like carrying an essential oil and, and smelling it every time there's some anxiety just to slow the system down. And to really get into the body, there has to be that settling. So it's always my kind of my step one in doing this work. Okay. Yeah. I think that's amazing. Especially, I, I love what you said about almost the smell meditations because I mean, so many of us know that the smell is basically one of the most powerful senses and it can absolutely transport you. So if you start to cultivate that as an association, that can really start to change things for people, I would think. Yeah, definitely. And we all have a different sense that we align to that is more regulating for us. So some people it is vision. It's like going and looking around. Some people, that's the last thing that will regulate them. It's subtouch. And so finding out for the client what that is for them. And once that has been established, it's taking that process of, of getting into the body. So if a client comes and they're sharing their story and they're really in their narrative and, and we've you know had space for the narrative, because I don't want to say that the narrative and the story isn't important, but there is a place, and we know this from neuroscience, where actually repeating your trauma verbally is re-traumatizing and is only re-strengthening those neural networks. So you're only really kind of making that route <laughs> thicker and thicker sometimes by going to talk therapy. And so once the narrative has been named, it's similar to what your, your therapist did of really asking like, where do you feel that in your body right now? As you're talking, can you tell me what's happening right now in your body? And there's those moments at the start, usually where it is a little bit like, oh, my therapist is doing something different, or I don't know what's happening. But it's, as a therapist, doing as much as you can to facilitate your client, not necessarily coming into a relationship with you, but using that relationship as a mirror to how they can be in relationship with their own body. And so using that attunement and safety that you're still gonna be there in the room with them while they have the space to go inside and, and see what's going on in there. Where does anxiety live? Where does the eating disorder live in my body? What, what part of me, when I, when I go into the feeling of being sick and unwell, where, where does that come up? Is it tension in my shoulder? Is it my face clenching? 
And then taking those somatic feelings in the body and using mindfulness again to see if there's an impulse or something the body wants to do, a movement, a release, a sound, and really working with that activation or charge that's been stuck in the system so it can release. And that support that wasn't there in the time of trauma or incident can come out of the system in a safe way. This is so fascinating. This is just absolutely incredibly fascinating. I, I especially want to underscore the, ta- the part of, that you've mentioned about that it can, it can basically repeat, like when you repeat your trauma verbally, that it can actually re-traumatize you. Because a lot of us only associate therapy with um, like talk therapy, like you were saying, but it can bring up so much that if we spend, you know, if we had a particularly traumatizing event that then we spend basically the next five or 10 years talking to our therapist about, are we ever really getting past it? If, if we keep bringing it up, right? Like what's, what's your opinion on that? Um, (laughs) <laughs> it's, I'm, I'm putting on the spot here because that's like a big question. <laughs> I fullheartedly believe that the way to release trauma, and my experience of clients and my own life experience too, and, and that may be within a bubble, is really by bringing in body based practices. Mm. And maybe that isn't seeing a somatic therapist. Maybe that's going to a massage. Maybe that's going to yoga. Maybe that's being a runner. I don't, it doesn't really matter. But we know from neuroscience that our body holds physiological imprints of trauma until the physiology has released the neural networks in your brain do not change. You can talk a lot about it. You can can CBT different belief systems and that works. It does work, but it doesn't get rid of what was originally there. It just changes it. Do you, there's one particular book that I'm thinking of right now. Um, The Body Keeps Score. Is, yes. is that something that, that you are like, are you sort of on the same track with something like that? Or are there things that you maybe take away from it, but then you would disagree with some aspects of it? Yeah. So I read um, The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kock probably four or five years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the time I loved it. Um, but I do remember there are pieces where I was like, oh, I don't know. But that was at a different point in my journey. So now I don't know what it would be like to read it again. But I do know his research and what he continues to do is quite amazing. So, um, yeah, I can't really think of anything that I can critique or even comment on when it comes to him and his work because it's been so profound, the research he's done. Do you have any, any other books that you uh, typically would recommend to maybe some of your clients or that you're really interested in or that, that give like a really sort of more like well-rounded perspective of some of, some of the things that you're mentioning? Yeah. Um, the work of Dr. Peter Levine. I Waking the Tiger, that is a book that I often recommend to clients um, just because it's such a beautiful kind of like first step of this is trauma in the body. We see a cheetah running and when they have an incident with another cheetah or another animal, they, they, they do things after they're safe. They shake. We can see them maybe sometimes they'll freeze. And in the same way, our human body does those things. And we know this is the fight, flight, freeze response. And um, due to the work of Stephen Purgis, um, who if you're really nerdy, <laughs> really nerdy, there's the polyvagal theory and it talks about um, the vagus nerve and how that's related into the fight, flight, freeze, specifically in humans. So that's another one that I would recommend if you're really nerdy. Um, 
And then I also, to clients, another book that I recommend is Hold Me Tight by Dr. Sue Johnson, um, which does with a lot of attachment, and she brings in interpersonal neurobiology by Dr. Dan Siegel, um, and looking at how our central nervous systems as humans attune through mirror neurons. Um, and those are kind of the ones that if a client is really interested, I'll put out as feelers. Um, because once you start learning the language and understanding how your body is, you know, in communication with itself, but also in communication with other people's bodies all the time, um, healing changes quite quickly. <laughs> so interesting. So interesting. I'm going to make sure to reference all those. I have read, uh, hold me tight by Dr. Sue Johnson. and I loved it. It was so, yeah. so good. It really, really digs into the attachment that we have with other people and the other relationships in our lives. And it's, it's really interesting, but I'm excited to check out the other two. That's awesome. <laughs> so I, and something that you've mentioned a couple times too, is how our bodies are communicating to other people. I would love to hear more about that because we know that body language is really powerful, but a lot of times we aren't, I don't, I don't think that at least speaking for myself, I don't think that I'm often necessarily as aware as I maybe could be about the language that my body is giving off without me even mm. thinking about it. Yeah, for sure. Um, so this comes from the work of Dr. Dan Siegel and it's still as science takes a really long time to prove and validate, but the evidence that he has so far is pretty amazing. So <laughs> everyone in the somatic realm is, is like, yay. Um, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> But essentially, a lot of the research he said that was coming out of other institutes now is really acknowledging the presence of mirror neurons. And we've known about mirror neurons for a long time, and they live in the prefrontal cortex, so right above your eyes, the part of your brain that's most accessible to your forehead. And they also are in your gut. And what we know is that humans, after they've spent about five to seven minutes together, the mirror neurons in my brain and the mirror neurons in the clients are going to actually start to sync up and they're going to start to find a, a common kind of, you could say, this isn't the scientific language, but this, the same vibration or frequency in both the prefrontal cortex and in the gut. And that's kind of an essence of what makes somatic therapy so potent is that oftentimes in being in this realm, the therapist has spent a lot of time on their own regulation because mirror neurons additionally regulate your vagus nerve, which deals with your whole central nervous system. If you have anxiety, it's coming from your central nervous system. So having a witness of someone who's regulated and tuned in their central nervous system and knows their vagus nerve and has been trained and attuned to the different subtleties in their own body gives the client an ability to be in their trauma or in their story and still be really held on this physiological level that they're not really aware of. And that is kind of the beauty of, of body language in somatics. And oftentimes as a therapist, like I'll start getting an upset stomach, you know, three minutes before my client says, oh, I have tension in my belly. And that is because there's something going on between us, and this happens everywhere we go with anyone we spend time with, we start to attune and we start to resonate. And that's often why you'll spend time with people and you'll start mirroring their body language or why people often yawn at the same time, or you watch people and their mannerisms start to mirror and behave in similar ways. Um, and that's a huge reason it's just your body syncing up to someone else which is pretty crazy that is so 
Cool. Oh my gosh. That, that right there is just amazing. And I, I, I got like goosebumps when you were describing about how, you know, you might start to feel like you're getting a bit of a stomach ache and then your client says that they have tension in their stomach. That's so interesting to me. I just think that's absolutely fascinating. <laughs> yeah. It's the body is definitely um, the biggest teacher. And I fully mean that when you it takes a lot of work to get in your body and uh, it takes a lot of work to stay in your body. Um, but it is so wise once you're there. So in a lot of, yeah. And in a lot of ways, I feel like somatic therapy is really this beautiful combination of like Eastern and Western medicine. And it's so science-based, which I love even more, but we're bringing in different elements that typically have been ignored or pushed to one side by Western medicine in the past. Now things are starting to change, but I just, I love that it's this, that it is this holistic practice that is bringing in a little bit of everything for the best possible client care, I feel like, because it just seems like it's the most complete version of. Yeah, you have named it correctly, like, like, like correctly, right? Like, um, somatic based therapy comes from Hakomi, which is my theoretical orientation originally. Um, and Hakomi is a Buddhist-based practice. It's a Buddhist-styled psychotherapy. Um, Ron Kurtz like, was really in that realm and also a therapist and said, hey, there, there's something here. I feel like I can take Buddhist principles and combine that with, with psychotherapy. And from his paradigm, we have sensory motor psychotherapy birthed out of it. And sensory motor psychotherapy is so well researched so well validated so neuroscience informed and so you've named it correctly right the the birthing process of somatics really does come from the blending of the east and west so interesting oh my gosh i love it i i know that you you did talk about this a little bit about like where stress and anxiety can manifest in you know kind of the shoulders and i know that the hips can really be a common place do you mm -hmm. find that people end up with come to you like complaining of certain physical ailments that then you end up being able to, to tie back to certain things. And then after they have done work with you to clear some of these things away and to, to work through them, that then a lot of that ends up disappearing for them. Like hips, especially I'm always interested in that because so many of us here in North America have all kinds of hip problems because a lot of us are sedentary too. And it all sort of ties together, but I'd love to hear more from you about that. Yeah. Um, so one of the things we do know is that, trauma or that that type of activation and i'm being a little vague in my language because i don't want to go all the way into the science but we know that the trauma energy that like locking and holding is all held in the joints and so it makes sense like perfectly to me that the hips being the space kind of locks and holds um and it's something that's so, so, so common. If you go to any yoga class, um, you're going to hear, like, we're going into pigeon pose and emotions may come up. And it has to do with the psoas and how the body is in structural alignment. Um, when it comes to having clients that have specific ailments, um, yeah, it's, it's so, it's, I, there's a whole missing piece of research around it and it's developing, but I so often see clients that are that are quite young that have IBS. That's a very common one with anxiety, um, fibromyalgia, or chronic pain, trauma. It's just I have so many clients. I've seen so many clients that suffer from those two, and 
and we start working together and there's an extensive history of childhood trauma, the body just can't hold all of that activation without doing something for so long. It makes perfect sense. It's like, oh, you're not listening to me. I'll manifest something that maybe will get your attention. And I never say that in a sense of blame uh, at all. It's just the body trying to trying to do something to, to get what it needs and to try and release and ultimately heal. So those, those ones I see often a lot of joint pain. Um, that's very, very common. And then additionally, because I see people with eating disorders, sometimes those get a little muddled. Uh, and there's a lot of other health issues that are going on with eating disorders. But those ones are kind of more specific to trauma and holding that activation in the body. Well, and that's the trouble too, is that especially potentially how, um, how long someone has had an eating disorder, that can of itself bring up all kinds of other health issues. It, kind of like what you're saying too, because the eating disorder can be sort of the, not the originator, but that can be like the first major symptom of, of other things going on. And then mm -hmm. because of that eating disorder, then it can be kind of a domino effect into other issues. Yes, for sure. And for, for some, for anyone who isn't really necessarily fully understanding this part of it, can you describe some of the feelings associated with not feeling safe in your own body? I would love to hear more about that because I think that, that we all need to have a little bit greater understanding when it comes to that. Yeah. So there, I always say that there's usually kind of two ways people go when they don't feel safe in their body. There's hypervigilance, which is what we kind of associate with anxiety, that like really buzzy feeling, go, 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 do, 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 do. And that sometimes will come with a hypersensitivity to the body of just like, I don't want to be touched. Everything is too much. I feel all of the things all of the time. Ah, like <laughs> kind of like, <laughs> or there's often the pendulum swing to the other side, which is more of a hypo, um, hypo arousal. And that is more of the like lethargic kind of depressed um, I don't feel anything in my body kind of place. And sometimes there can be fusings of that, of I'm so anxious and I don't feel my body at all. But that safety really comes from that inability to feel your own body, that inability to, to actually know what anxiety feels like. Because I have worked with clients who I'm like, where do you feel the anxiety? And they've said to me, I don't know. I, I don't feel anything in my body. I, I don't even know that I'm sitting here right now, except for the fact that I can see that my legs are on the couch. And that's all a huge part of, of not feeling safe. So sometimes it will swing to too much sensation in the body that goes, oh, too much. I just need to shut this out in any way I can. So I'm going to distract. Or I actually genuinely don't feel anything in my body. And, and I don't know how. So depending, people usually kind of swing to one or the other. Um, but the, the treatment or the work is, is coming into that place of, of lowering that activation or bringing more awareness into a body, into the body that's contained so, so safety can be created. And how do you, how do you work with, like, how does it vary whether people are sort of more hypervigilant or are experiencing kind of the more hypo end of the scale? How mm -hmm. does what you do vary depending on one of those two feelings. Totally. So if I have a client who comes in who's more on the hypo end and you can you can really see that in their their structural integrity in their body and how they posture, which is another thing that you're trained in somatic based therapies is to really witness how the muscles are aligned in the in your client's body even though you're not a body worker. 
you're just assessing the structural integrity and, and where things are, are a little bit off and exploring that with a client. So if I have someone who's hypo, they're usually more collapsed and more slumped. And oftentimes they don't have the energy for therapy. They're really tired. They are lethargic. And it's being like, okay, today we're actually not going to sit. We're going to walk and talk. Let's go. Like, <laughs> oh, I on. love it. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're getting up and we're going to do something in the body and we're going to bring some movement in there and bring some activation. And oftentimes these are people who are sick with an eating disorder. So then it's big aging that how much movement are we going to do together? Is it just going to be all of therapy today? We're going to do self-touch and we're just going to squeeze our arms for the next 50 minutes in a really gentle way. Here's some oil. <laughs> Keep oh, talking. that's awesome. Oh my gosh. I love that, that you get to do this type of practice. I think this is so fascinating. It's so key for so many people. Yeah, it's, it's different. And I just, I strongly believe that no form of healing or treatment plan is the same for any humans. You like, we all need something different. And so my approach is really tailoring after like, what, what can we do right now? to support like your inner healer, the one that's inside of you. I'm just here to witness that happening. Um, if I'm with someone who's hypervigilant, <laughs> um, I've definitely sat with clients and been like, we're gonna sit, just we're gonna do our, try and do our meditation today. And every time you feel a wave of anxiety, I'm gonna sit beside you and, and you can squeeze my hand or here's a stress ball and you can squeeze that. And you can watch them kind of slowing down and being in the process of like, oh my God, this is so uncomfortable. But they need the opposite kind of treatment and experience as someone who's in hypo. And sometimes those clients do need to kind of release or get to a place where they're like, working out is actually hurting my body now. I don't want to do that. I know I need to sit still. I know, but it's so hard for me. And and oftentimes, um, especially people in eating disorders can self-identify that if working out has been their way to release anxiety or be in their body is obsessive working out. They often know when they've gotten to that place in their healing where this actually doesn't work for me. I, I can't keep doing this. I know it, it's just, it's not a viable option anymore. I need to try something else. Well, stillness is really underrated in a lot of ways too. I, I mean, very underrated, like we're go, 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 right? Like you, you live in a big city, you live in, in Vancouver. So I know that you, I'm sure see this every day, like people rushing around and traffic and all of those things. And it's kind of the society that we live in. Do you feel like you see more people that are hyper versus hypo? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, <laughs> I would say there's a split, but I would say that the clients that I do see that are hyper vigilant are, and I'm using kind of air quotes, highly functionable in society. Okay. Just as unwell as the people that are in the hypo, but the hypervigilant are able to maintain that, that mask or facade of, of, of everything is perfect and fine and my life is great and I'm doing all of the things and does it, you know, they're, they're really praised in society. Whereas the clients that I see hypo don't receive that validation and that can be really shameful too. I'm so happy you brought that up because as you're saying that, like, this is where busy is a badge of honor, right? Like this yeah. is where this comes in. Yeah. We, we praise productivity. And even if you might be productive in checking things off your to-do list, but you are suffering inside, no one else knows that. And no one mm -hmm. else might dig in deep enough to notice it. So we just praise people on 
you know, making it way, making their way through their to-do list and good for you. Look at you go. <laughs> we, don't, yeah. we don't offer praise in other ways. And, and then it just continues to reward that. It's like Pavlovian's dogs, but, and again, we're rewarding the entirely wrong thing a lot of times. Yes, definitely. And that's a huge piece in the work of recovery from disordered eating or an eating disorder is really acknowledging that we live in a culture that that supports disordered behaviors and praises them and validates them. And, you know, it's, it's kind of, like you said, like a badge of honor to, to be in that in a culture that's quite disordered in how it views health and body. And it doesn't really even view the body as anything but just like a meat vessel that the mind lives in. Like we're still kind of there. <laughs> yes, it's so true. I mean, things are starting to shift, but hundred percent like that we are still very much in like caveman days in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah. Um, I teach a lot of meditation and I even notice it in the meditation realm of the languaging of like, you can control your thoughts or you can change your brain. And I, and I go, okay, that's a really masculine, a really cognitive, a really like patriarchal consumer-based belief to think that we can control or change instead of surrendering into the wisdom that's presenting in our body and in our mind because it's there for a reason. That's such a great, yes. Oh my gosh. I'm so glad you mentioned that as well because yeah, I, I spent many years and some and often still struggle with being stuck in the masculine. And I think that a lot of people tend to swing more that way than the feminine because the masculine is like, you know, the success and the money and, and the getting things done and like doing all of the things. And we have to pull out of that a little bit in order to kind of bring ourselves back into alignment and, and kind of be able to experience the, the full, the full picture, I think. Yeah. I um, talk a lot about either like the distorted masculine or toxic masculinity. My language there hasn't, I haven't sorted out one yet, but um, especially in eating disorder recovery, because a lot of the female clients that I work with, because I mostly work with women or those who identify as being a woman, around how this distorted masculinity is really kind of driving their eating disorder in that sense of productivity and doing and success and being perfect. And those are very sharp qualities that are being really tainted through this kind of distorted masculinity that then these female clients is clients I see trying to embody to to really live that out and it's a really tricky conversation to have especially in our climate right now yes absolutely oh my gosh it's very tricky right now there's there's just a lot happening in the world there's a lot changing and it's really bringing things into a whole new perspective for a lot of people I think Mm-hmm, for sure. And that um, we so desperately need the like authentic masculine. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes we definitely do. <laughs> Actually, I wanted to circle back really quick because I made a note here about uh, addressing posture because <laughs> this is, this is my other thing when it comes to like the structural integrity that you're talking about. I feel like so many of us have poor posture, like so <laughs> many of us, because again, it's back to like, the issues, one of the issues why I feel like our, a lot of our hips are locked up, not only due to emotional issues um, and potential trauma, but sitting all the time. And that really contributes to poor posture and hunching over a computer. So do you, how do you kind of assess that when it comes down to figuring out what, how much of that structural integrity or lack of integrity, potentially in this case, 
is associated with their more physical acts and like their job and hunching over and things like that compared mm-hmm. to the more emotional aspect of it. Yeah. So I definitely um, don't take the full perspective of like staunch, like first forerunner somatic therapists who would say like your physical body kind of motivates your interests. So your desire to not be seen may be why you chose a job where you get to hunch over all day and be on the computer and type and be in that posture. That isn't really the perspective that I take because I do see a few uh, flaws in that. But what I do notice with clients, especially when we talk about trauma or things that are vulnerable, there will be postural shifts. And that is the posture that I'm more curious about is how when we're talking about strong emotions or things that make you feel vulnerable or painful, what happens in your body? Where do you go? Do you like when speaking about something vulnerable, do you like puff up your chest and raise your chin and start breathing really big and taking up all this space with your ribs? Or are you someone who's going to cave in and slump down and curl inwards? And there's tons of variations in that. But when you're working in this way and you're being mindful to notice body and also mindful of sensation in your own body, those, that structural integrity will become very clear, especially when in trauma, because it's going to emphasize what was already there. And what was already there may just be genuine. I've been sitting in a desk all day and I'm in a culture that doesn't move. Um, so that's kind of, I get a little bit more because I'm speaking to people when they're vulnerable. Mm, I, I, yeah, that's a really interesting perspective as well, because I, I think that's, that's so true. Like my therapist always, she'll always call me out because when, if I start to get upset and anxious about something, I stop breathing. And that was another mm. thing that I never noticed until she pointed out. And now she just looks at me and she's like, breathe. <laughs> and it's not something I ever noticed. And now in my everyday life, I can tell that not only do I feel anxiety in my stomach if I'm getting really anxious, but I, I stop breathing. And we all know that, that that sets off the nervous system as well. So yes. then you're making yourself even more anxious because you've stopped breathing. And we have to cultivate you know, those breathing practices, but it's, it's also more about just bringing awareness into how our bodies are reacting, like what you were talking about, when really strong emotions come up and figuring out what that looks like for you as an individual. Mm -hmm. So interesting. Yeah, it is very interesting. And I worked with a therapist for some time who was very well trained in somatics. And I had no idea that I like spent my whole life leaning forward that I didn't know. And I was anxious and I was there for anxiety and seeing him. And he just like very gently was like, do you know that you spend your whole like waking, like walking life, all of these times I've seen you for all these months, like, like leaning like 25 degrees forward, like trying to get to the next thing all of the time. <laughs> I was like, oh no, I had no idea. And then it was constantly like this very uncomfortable practice in all of my life of like, actually shifting my way backwards and like being in alignment and not trying to be somewhere I wasn't yet. (laughs) Oh, it's so cool. I, because this is the thing is that sometimes we just need one person to point something like that out to us that we would never have noticed in a thousand years by ourselves. And as soon as you know it, you can't unknow it. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And it's, that's one of the reasons why somatics so stuck with me because I did notice very quickly that having my body in alignment and breathing like up my full center, like lung, stomach, everything included, not at this angle, my anxiety calmed down. 
and I was like, I've tried so many things to, to control this anxiety, get rid of it using very kind of masculine language instead of just maybe asking what the anxiety was needing or why it was there or what I could do to, to soften into it. Oh, so, so interesting to me. Like the, this entire practice is just so fascinating. I mean, what, what do you want people to know most about somatic therapy and how they can maybe begin to introduce aspects of this into their daily lives to approach their health from this holistic path? Even if they're not necessarily seeing a, a therapist or a somatic therapist um, mm-hmm. yet, are there like little small daily habits that people can start to introduce? For sure. Um, There's so many that I can think of. It's really, somatic is all about connecting to your body and making the implicit, so the unknown that lives in your body, explicit. So that's known, bringing that unconscious to consciousness. And so there's so many ways to do that. And um, in daily life, that can that could look like a movement class or running or being in nature or connecting with a sense of smell, even when you're cooking, that can be like, I'm going to make my cooking experience about the fragrances that come from this food. Or it could be something as simple as, I'm going to get my favorite essential oil and and rub my feet and just really feel what it's like to touch my toes. And so these practices can be from, you know, three minutes to 30 minutes. It doesn't really matter. It's just cultivating and really creating that relationship with your body. And there's so many ways to do that because it doesn't have to look like yoga. It doesn't have to look like movement. It could be dancing around your apartment to your favorite song or going out and dancing with your female friends and just noticing how it feels like to flail around on the dance floor. It's I love that. Yeah. <laughs> Introducing the, the play aspect I think is really important because we can, we can bring in the play and kind of get back in touch with our bodies at the same time. And it's like dual purpose. <laughs> yeah. And I, I do certainly believe I'm like, your body wants to play. Like it, it's got stuff that it, it, it's holding, but it's also here to like experience joy and happiness and play. And those feelings are so much more vibrant when you're connected to the full being of your body and not just the intellectual concept of happiness or play. So, so good. Oh my gosh, Ailey, this has just been massively helpful. And I, I just, I'm so excited to learn even more from you because um, this is, all of this is blowing my mind and I hope that everyone is getting as much of this as I am. Tell everyone where, where they can find you. It will all be referenced uh, over at roomtogrowpodcast.com as well, but I want to make sure that everybody can, can jump over and, uh, and connect with you. Yeah, um, you can find me on Instagram at Therapy with Ailey and my website is my name, so AileyJolie.com um, and you can connect with me there. My email is on there. You can ask a question. Um, I do work in private practice, so I see clients um, either in person or online and I am based in Vancouver and that's it right now. I will be in Toronto and Ottawa doing some workshops um, so that will be up and posted soon. Um, but yeah, those are the main ways to kind of connect with me right now. Oh my God. I have to keep an eye out for that. Oh my gosh. I will totally come to your one in Toronto. <laughs> so I just have one more question for you. If you could offer people one piece of advice on growing into the best possible version of themselves, what would it be? Mm, this comes from my therapist who I'll give a shout out to Hiroko Michaels here in Vancouver. And she always says to me, and it's the best piece of wisdom now that I understand what she's saying years later. Um, And she always says, slow down, you'll get there faster. 
And I fully believe that. That is just the best advice. I always love asking this question because lately, like my guests have just been giving the best, the best advice to this question. I love it. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh my gosh. Ailey, thank you so much for taking the time today. I'm so appreciative and I can't wait to hopefully connect with you in person at a workshop. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. It was so nice to chat with you. I loved it. <laughs> oh, good. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to the Room to Grow podcast today. All show notes and references can be found over at roomtogrowpodcast.com. And can you do me one huge favor before you go though? If you can take a, take a screenshot of this episode and tag me on social media, I would absolutely love to see who's listening and get to connect with you and thank you. And if you could leave a review on iTunes, that would go a long way and make such a huge difference. It really helps to get the word out there, get more amazing guests on the show and helps to get all of this information out to the world. Looking forward to growing with you.